Hello, it's Wednesday, July the 19th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. At this moment, Area 45 finds itself smack dab in the swamp. We're recording this in Hoover's Washington, D.C. office, high atop the intersection of 14th Street and New York Avenue, a couple of blocks from the White House. And joining us today in studio, Adam White. Adam is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, writing on the courts in the administrative state. He also teaches administrative law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, where he is executive director of the school's Center for the Study of the Administrative State. He was recently appointed to a two-year term of the Administrative Conference of the United States, a federal advisory council who proposes reforms for modern public administration. You are a busy young man. <laughs> Not too busy to talk. Adam, you've written two columns that caught my interest. One, uh, for the Weekly Standard, the March 13, 2017 issue, the headline, The Power of the Presidential Pen, The Benefits and Pitfalls of Executive Orders. And you have a piece in the Hoover Digest, which is uh, the headline, Energy in the Executive. And you, sir, or whoever wrote that headline is a thief because somebody else came up with that phrase. That's right. That's Alexander Hamilton's phrase in the Federalist Papers, describing one of the virtues of executive power, namely, as he said it there, energy in the executive is a leading character of good government, not just in the government's conduct of foreign affairs, but also, we often forget, in the conduct of domestic government at home, the administration of government and the protection of rights. Very good. Now, tomorrow is the six-month anniversary of the Trump administration, January 20th to July 20th, six months, and Trump took the, the inaugural oath. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will see talking points coming out of the White House of everything they've done in the past six months, how they've changed the world. And they will point to Neil Gorsuch. And they'll be correct. That was a good good job by them. They will point to the action in Syria, which was a change of pace in the previous administration. Then we get to the issue of legislation and executive action. Legislation is, dare we say, complicated right now, but they will point to a lot of movement on the executive action front. Well, that's right. And, of course, these things always tend to start with executive action. The president, any president, is sworn into office, and the first thing they tend to do is sign uh, executive orders. Sometimes there's legislation awaiting them, sometimes not. But executive orders can be a good way to kickstart a broader process, both a regulatory regulatory reform process Mm -hmm. and also uh, a legislative discussion. Um, uh, In this case, President Trump had a number of orders he was ready to sign, and he's continued to sign them at a very high clip. He did an order on the first day on Obamacare, I believe, didn't Mm -hmm. he? That's right. I think so far he's signed 40 executive orders, which historically is a pretty high high number. And they come in different shapes and sizes. Some of them are focused on specific narrow policies, say Keystone Pipeline. Others set up a framework for... uh, regulation going forward. There's some mm-hmm. executive orders that change the way agencies think about the costs of their regulation and how they account for those costs. And there are executive orders like some directed at the financial agencies or the environmental protection agency or others that direct those agencies to re- start rethinking their own regulations. Things that the president can't just single-handedly do with one stroke of a pen, but what he can do is direct the agency to begin a longer process of what we call notice and comment rulemaking. So President Trump has tried to achieve all of those aims with his executive orders so far. Right. Now, uh, if Trump keeps up this current pace, he will have the most executive orders issued since uh, for a first-year president since Harry Truman in 1945. So he's been busy. But let me read you back something that you wrote here in the Hoover Digest piece, and let's expound on it. 
Here's what she said, quote, If the president and his supporters are seduced by the seemingly friction-free ease of signing executive orders, they may become less interested in doing the hard, slow work of engaging the legislative process. That was ultimately the story of the Obama administration. It might become the story of the Trump administration. Now, you and I talked before we came on the air here to do this podcast about the executive orders and two things which might be attractive to Donald Trump are, A, the word executive. Perhaps he sees a natural connection given his business background. Mm-hmm. But the fact that doing an executive order is exceedingly easy because you literally have a piece of paper put in front of you and are told, sign here. That's right. Now, I don't want to understate the amount of work that goes into these executive orders. The counsel's office in the White House and others right. in the White House spent a lot of time thinking these things through. But what it doesn't require is two houses of Congress voting on it. Right. And it doesn't require having 51 senators down to the White House to talk about Obamacare. Right. It's a pretty easy thing to do. But the concern is, you seem to be saying, is this becomes habit forming. That's right. What I, what I, what I try to suggest, and the, the articles that you very kindly pointed out were my ways of thinking through these issues at the outset of the administration. And so I tried to cast these things in terms of benefits and drawbacks. And so obviously a benefit of executive orders is energy and action and kickstarting a four-year process in the agencies. One of the downsides, as, as you point out, is this, this worry that the president becomes so accustomed um, to just the ease of signing an order that it becomes a little bit like junk food, right? right. It's just, it's, it's easy, it's there, it gives you a nice little quick buzz, and then you can move on to the next thing. And my concern is that executive orders, at some point in, in a presidency, become a substitute for legislation. One example of this, I thought, was, was in the Obama administration. At the very beginning of his first term, there was a lot of talk about uh, new environmental and energy legislation, perhaps cap and trade. Um, I wasn't a fan of it, but obviously it had a lot of support in, in, in parts of Congress. But that legislative process broke down pretty quickly, and the president and his administration just turned, t- turned to single-handed, unilateral executive action. Right. And I do think that at some point that possibility of executive action has its own sort of gravitational pull on our politics. If the president knows that he can just walk away from the bargaining table and sign executive orders or, or have his agencies promulgate regulations, and if people in his party know that, then that distinctly changes the type of negotiation you'll have in Congress. And by the same token, if the president's critics on an issue know that he can just walk away um, and do things single-handedly, then what incentive do they have for really negotiating in good faith in the legislative process? And so a point I try to make in a few places in my writing is that we shouldn't think of the administrative state and administrative agencies and regulation as distinct from politics. I think at this point it's taken on such mass that it has a real gravitational pull on our politics and actually deforms our politics in a way that makes it even harder to pass legislation and then easier to do executive orders. Right. Although um, you can make the argument that this was part of the bargain of electing Donald Trump and it was part of the larger mantra of the election to go in and undo things that Barack Obama did. That's very true. Uh, the, f- the first several executive orders that we saw were specifically intended to undo the executive orders uh, of President Obama or begin the process of pulling back his regulations. I don't want to suggest that the Trump administration has invented any of this. Mm-hmm. They haven't. President Obama didn't either. President Bush didn't either. This has been growing and building upon itself uh, presidency, presidency after presidency. And I think it each one sort of builds on the previous one mm-hmm. and amplifies it. Each reaction is slightly more intense than the previous action. 
uh, at some point, it has. Uh, you'd think it has to reach a point where it can't go any further, but with each administration, we see that it can go further. Right. I don't want to uh, make you waste your entire afternoon here going through all 40 executive orders, but uh, point to one or two which you think are significant, one or two that really, really are game changers. Well, I think that the overarching regulatory review order was the most important one. This is one that was signed early on in which the president put agencies on what, what a lot of us call a budget, telling agencies that they can't increase the total costs they're imposing on society. If they want to pass new rules, then they need to find ways to cut costs elsewhere. That's something that a lot of, that a lot of, of policy thinkers and scholars have been advocating for for years, often in the form of legislation. Um, uh, President Trump's decision to do it through an executive order was a surprise. Um, and it's a very interesting surprise. And in the same order, President Trump ordered the agency, he, he, he imposed what, what's called the two-for-one deal. In addition to this cost cap, agencies can't promulgate a new rule without repealing two old rules. Now, what does that mean in practice? What qualifies as a rule, right? It's hard to say. But the fact that President Trump and his administration are coming up with these sort of novel approaches is very important. I think a lot of administrative law scholars and others were left scratching their heads by these orders because they're so, to use a, a, a big word, probably misuse a big word, so orthogonal to the way that we tend to think about administrative law and regulation. Right. A lot of people just didn't know how to categorize these and how they'll work in practice. And I don't think even the administration probably knows with precision exactly how they'll work in practice, but it's a beginning of a conversation of reform. That's one I like. Another one, couple that I like, and I alluded to them earlier, were executive orders on financial regulation and on environmental regulation. Mm -hmm. On financial regulation, uh, President Trump signed an order enumerating a number of just basic principles that he wants his agencies, um, ranging from, say, the Securities and Exchange Commission to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and other regulators, uh, principles that they should observe in promulgating regulations. It was passed, it was, it was written in very broad terms, but it's a document to which they'll have to return as they're promulgating their own regulations in the future. On environmental regulation, President Trump signed a couple of executive orders one on energy and greenhouse gas emissions, one on what's called the Waters of the United States rule, where he directed the agency to begin a process of rolling back or rethinking past regulations, very controversial regulations from the Obama administration. And so I quite like those as well. Very good. So six months in, you're watching this presidency. Um, are you surprised by the pace of executive orders? Are you the Weekly Standard article, you sound a little concerned about the road he might be going down here. Well, I wrote that article in the very opening weeks, and so it was less about immediate concern, and it was more about right. concerns about the path things will take. Right. I think it's too soon to tell uh, whether the Trump administration will sort of walk away from the legislative process and focus on executive orders. To this point, obviously, there's real fights over legislation. We've had just the latest iteration of the fight over the Affordable Care Act. Um, pretty soon we'll have some legislative uh, fights over tax reform, hopefully regulatory reform legislation, and other things. I don't think the Trump administration has walked away from the legislative process yet. I think the real turning point may come after the midterm elections, regardless of whether Republicans or Democrats win the House or the Senate, regardless of how that dust settles. I think that will be the critical moment at which this administration will have to decide whether it wants to double down on executive orders uh, and regulatory power or continue with the work of legislation. The pen and the phone giveth, the pen and the phone taketh away. That's right. It's very Shakespearean. What does that <laughs> mean? Well, in the 
later years of the Obama administration, when President Obama was finding no, he, he, he wasn't having any legislative success anymore, he wasn't even trying that hard, and it was clear with the Republican Congress it wasn't going to go in his direction. He had this very famous or infamous line, he said, I have a pen and I have a phone, I have a pen to sign things and I have a phone to call my supporters and, and, and people on in the agencies and get things moving. And, and give, give him credit, that's better than Bill Clinton saying the president's still relevant. That's right, <laughs> that's right. Um, right. So he said, yes, I still have a pen, I still have a phone. And I remember the day after the election, I think it was the day after the election, President Obama gave, a, gave remarks maybe in the Rose Garden. He gave remarks in the White House sort of reflecting on the previous evening's electoral defeat. Mm -hmm. And obviously he was surrounded by very crestfallen staff, um, real sort of pretty stunning photos of just utterly crestfallen staff, understandably so. And I, I remember quipping to a friend, they just realized that the pen and the phone stay in the building. Right? That doesn't go with President Obama. That stays in the Oval Office. And now it's President Trump's pen and his phone. Uh, and so one of the things that President Trump can and has done at the outset with executive power is roll back President Obama's assertions of executive power. Um, it's very understandable. Of course, President Obama, when he came to power, immediately uh, reformed or repealed a number of his predecessors' actions, President mm -hmm. Bush's actions, and so on. Um, as executive orders become ever more significant in terms of policy, I think it'll be interesting to see in the years to come what the impact of this is. If every four to eight years you have presidents reforming not just sort of procedural orders inside the executive branch, but with the stroke of a pen making significant changes on national policy, I'm not sure what that means for the country. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of those orders that I like quite a lot, but if every four years an election becomes an instant decision point on which major policies flip-flop back and forth in one direction, um, what does that mean for regulatory certainty, predictability, expectations? Uh, who knows? And I'm asking questions here. I don't have answers, but I think it'll be very interesting to see what the further ramifications of these trends are. Well, one casualty that strikes me, Adam, would be a rather atrophied legislative branch of government. Yes. If you have a president who is doing things by executive fiat, but also a president who is not really engaging with Congress and not doing the natural give and take. Congress not driving matters necessarily, but Congress also not being consulted or also being advised as well. So you have a, a top-heavy government or overbalanced government with the executive, and then ultimately what? The courts, which are going to have to come in for the invariable lawsuit and decide if the order is correct, such as the travel ban. That's right. You have a Congress, a legislative branch that just forgets how to legislate. Right. It actually loses the memory and the muscle memory of legislating. More and more, Congress looks like I did the other day in my front lawn trying to hit baseballs to my <laughs> two-year-old son. You know, I know in theory how to hit a baseball, and I used to do it. Uh, a couple of decades of not hitting a baseball means it's I look pretty foolish trying. Um, Congress seems to have forgotten how to legislate, it seems to have in some ways lost the will to legislate. At this point, in many ways, I hate to say it, but Congress seems to be little more than ombudsman for the administrative state. Mm -hmm. Decades ago, it passed immense statutes, handed immense power over to these agencies. The agencies now do what they're going to do. Right. Congress has hearings where they criticize the things they don't like. Congress has a say in the appointments process when there are actually appointments happening. Um, but other than that, Congress just isn't in the business of legislating. It's no longer the first branch, it's now kind of the last branch, following in the dust of the executive branch in the courts. Right. Now, you have an argument going around this town that one of the problems here is that the Republican Congress doesn't really know how to legislate in this regard. 
Uh, a lot of these members are rather new to town. A lot of these members know what an existence with a Democratic president. So it doesn't matter what you do in committee, what you vote on the floor. If the president doesn't like it, it ain't going anywhere. So they don't know what it is to have a president at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue with whom to work. And so the argument is that for a lot of these fellows, it's like being the boy in the bubble, stepping outside of the bubble. And now <laughs> what do I do to actually walk on the grass? Uh, but let me let me ask you this question, Adam. It's not just a question of legislative branch uh, going about its business. It's also the executive branch of government. And what has caught my eye is six months into this presidency, uh, it is amazing to look at the number of vacancies in senior positions of government, vacancies on the federal court, and vacancies with ambassadorial positions as well. So you follow the courts very closely. Uh, what What is going on here with the president and Congress and judicial picks? Well, I don't know. <laughs> You're right. There's a number of vacancies. Right. President Obama filled a lot of seats on the on the judiciary on the federal judiciary, but there's still many many open seats, uh, well over a hundred, I believe, um, in the federal courts of appeals and in the federal district courts. And all of these require a nomination by the president, uh, advice and consent from the Senate, and then appointment by the president. And for the lower courts, presidents have often traditionally relied upon senators, home state senators, to play some role in vetting local nominees. Right. Now, that process sort of changes over time. Um, it's not written in stone. I mean, the, 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 the advice and consent part is. The nomination and confirmation part is written in the Constitution. But in terms of these, just the practical question of vetting candidates and the role of senators, that's open to debate. Um, it's open to reform by the president and by the Senate leadership, and it's not clear exactly what they'll do. I mean, I'm, I've been around this town long enough to know that, that there's a lot of good nominees, in D, or a lot of good prospective candidates in D.C. Uh, and out in the states, and more than the administration could ever need to fill these seats. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that the administration is interviewing candidates and vetting people, but what it will take to get to the point of nomination is another question. They've already nominated a handful of judges, right. including some really good ones. Um, Joan Larson, for example, a Michigan Supreme Court justice, uh, has been nominated for the Federal Court of Appeals in the Sixth Circuit. She could be a Supreme Court nominee a year or two from now. Did a batch of red state uh, judges right. just the other week as well. Right, and there's other there's other vacancies, including uh, in, in the Hooper Institution's home, uh, the Ninth Circuit in, right. out in California uh, and other western states. Why it is, though, that we haven't gotten nominations, that's an interesting question. It could be that the process is still playing itself out. It could be that the administration is waiting for a good moment mm -hmm. politically to announce a slate of nominees. I just don't know. Um, but as you mentioned, it's not just the courts. It's the executive branch. Right. Uh, the New York Times just a couple of days ago had a very interesting story just putting numbers on the slow pace of appointments to the leadership of these agencies. They said that so far... This is, again, a couple of days ago, so in, in mid-July. Uh, President Trump has announced 36% of nominees for these political leadership positions at the top of agencies. 36%. At the same time, in President Obama's admi early administration, he had appointed 78%. So President Trump is at least behind President Obama's pace. This actually worries me quite a lot. Um, as we said at the very beginning of our conversation, founders especially Hamilton, were counting on energy in the executive, that the president would, would help to administer the law, the president would help jumpstart the legislative process. But in the administration of law, you need politically appointed leadership in the agencies to transmit that president's energy to the bureaucracy as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
the federal bureaucracy is, is vastly oversized and, and uh, overpowered, I believe. But it's there. It is what it is. Um, and for President Trump and his appointees heading the agencies like the EPA or uh, the Commerce Department or any of the agencies to get them to really carry out the president's policies, it's going to require the bureaucracy to follow. And that is going to require appointed political leadership at the tops of these agencies. Um, in that one of those executive order articles you mentioned earlier, I said another downside of executive orders is that it's an order. It's, it's, it's a command to the bureaucracy to do something that the bureaucracy probably isn't already inclined to do. Of course, in many respects, most respects, that's a good thing. That's why we have an elected president. But it's an awkward way to start a conversation when the president is ordering these people to do things rather than having policies come up through the bureaucracy. In the end, it's the better system, but it requires the president and the appointed leadership to be leaders and to lead a bureaucracy and to turn a bureaucracy to the extent that that's possible. I'm going to give you, Adam, three possible reasons for why this has happened to the executive branch. Okay. And you tell me based on either what you know or what your gut tells me knows to what the what the culpable factor is here. Mm-hmm. Factor number one is uh, what you hear about a blacklist within the Trump administration. It's simply it is hard for people to apply if they've been in the past critical of the Trump administration, if they supported another candidate, if they don't pass the purity test. So number one, the potential for a very selective blacklisting process. Uh, Factor number two could be people looking at going the administration deciding, is this in my best term career interest? For example, there was an opening for White House communications director. I know this town well enough to tell you, Adam, that the line forms to the rear of people who want that job because why? You do it for a couple of years and you monetize. You go up to New York or join a PR firm in Washington and make a ton of money, but people in Washington were making the opposite calculation. This is not good for my career. So factor number two, career prospects. But then the third factor may be lack of an alpha dog in this process that Either there's just not somebody in the White House making this happen, there's not somebody at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue in Congress pushing this on the White House, that absent some large presence pushing this along, it just suffers. So what say you? Well, I do think, I don't know that I'd call it, I mean, maybe maybe it's a blacklist, I don't know. Blacklist is harsh, I know, but just, oh. yeah, but that it's a very, you, it's very selective process, and they do not suffer fools gladly, yeah. and they take offense to past offenses. All administrations, every presidency needs loyal people working right. at the top. Uh, again, if the agencies aren't an end in and of themselves. They are a means to the end. They're the means to constitutional administration and execution of our laws. And the president of course, should surround himself and stock his agencies with people who are loyal to his principles and his mission. Mm -hmm. Um, President Trump, of course, arose through the political process in a rather unconventional way. Mm -hmm. Um, Some have described it as a hostile takeover of the Republican Party in some ways, but whatever you want to call it, obviously his relationship to a lot of the people that would have gone into a Republican administration is not the same. And so I don't fault at all, actually, the Trump administration for, for... having heightened sensitivity to this, heightened awareness of this, Mm -hmm. um, and for being extra selective. Because while it's true they're not helping themselves by letting positions go unfilled, they wouldn't be helping themselves by stocking agencies with people who are hostile to President Trump and who would leak from the inside of the agencies, who would slow walk initiatives and so on. So I think that there is some heightened selectivity. Um, Related to that was your your third point, lack of an alpha dog. It's, in some ways, it's the, the many cooks problem, right? right. It's that there's, there's so many people in the administration, as, as I've, 
I, I guess I understand it. There's so many people that have the ability. Let me put it this way. It only takes one person to veto an, a, a, a nomination, right? Mm-hmm. It only takes one person to say, this prospective nominee is terrible. We, sh- we shouldn't let right. the president uh, appoint him or her. And so if it only takes one person out of six or seven power centers in the administration to shut someone down, it's very difficult to get somebody to win the unanimous support of all those power centers. Now, of course, also in terms of people not going in um, because they think that a job in the Trump administration won't be as lucrative or beneficial to their careers in the long run, I could could see that. you know, a lot of agencies, the general counsel, I'm a, I'm a recovering lawyer, um, and I know that a general counsel's position in an agency it tends to be a very, very lucrative job after that. You go on to work for some big company or some big law firm. That's how it usually goes. Um, will the general counsel of, you know, some federal agency be as, lucra- be, be as, um, as appealing to law firms mm-hmm. or big corporations when it's it's Trump's person? I don't know. That'll all yeah. depend on how, how Trump is seen politically years from now. But I think right now some people are hedging their bets. Yeah, by the way, recovering lawyer, uh, the California legislature is quite concerned that not enough people are passing the California bar. They want to make the bar easier to pass in California. In other words, California's problem is we don't have enough lawyers. Right, right. I, um, my brother just passed the California bar, and so I understand how unwieldy it is. But, yeah, I'm not sure that... It seems like the last thing that California needs right now is more lawyers, with all due respect to my brother. Exactly, exactly. You know, there's a fourth factor, Adam, that I that I uh, think left out in talking about Trump and the executive order situation, actually the appointment situation, and that's the oddity of this situation, and that Donald Trump uh, was the Republican nominee. Donald Trump was a Republican candidate for president. He was the Republican who won the presidency. But Donald Trump, though he may be a Republican, he is not of the Republican Party. The analogy is California and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was a Republican, but not really of the Republican Party. He didn't come up through the GOP. He doesn't have a long-standing relationship within the party. And so when Trump was elected president, you don't have the long list of people already angling for different jobs, you know, kind of the pre-made government, if you will. They're kind of doing this on the fly now, and people in Washington also reacting to thinking the guy would not have won. So maybe part of this, in fairness to them, is just the oddness of the situation and that it's not a traditional campaign that does not come with the usual man and woman power. Yeah, that's. I think that's very true. I think the people that the president has put in at the tops of agencies include a number of people that you wouldn't normally see the top agencies, not just, say, Oklahoma Attorney General um, Scott Pruitt, who I, I quite admire and like you know, being the top of the EPA, but say Steve Mnuchin and Wilbur Ross, now mm-hmm. running the Treasury Department right. and Commerce. I mean, those are not, you know, th- those are not traditional appointees, especially with respect to Treasury. Um, and so it's very interesting to see how they're staffing things up. And also in a broader sense, this administration seems much more willing to question just the basic premise- premises of why we have certain structures and how government does about its business. As I understand it, uh, Jared Kushner is working on some initiative to reinvent federal government um, to bring in some of the principles of of management from outside of government. Um, That would definitely change the way that agencies are staffed and go about doing their business. Rego, I hear Rego. Yeah. Here we go again. Yeah. Uh, but getting back to judges now, let's let's let's, let's close the loop on judges as sure. well. Uh, it's we're in this culture where it's very tempting to say, you know, we'll do this on day one. We'll repeal Obamacare on day one. We'll do tax reform on day two, and you know, on the sixth, seventh day, we'll rest. Uh, 
the judicial process is lengthy, as you mentioned. You have to find your candidates. You have to, you have to vet them. You then have to take them through the judiciary committee. They have to have hearings and so forth. So I can't do it in 48 hours. But what Adam is really a reasonable timeline for moving these judges along. And with that in mind, if you're in charge of the process, you tell me what courts you're looking at. Are you looking at the Ninth Circuit to fill first, or where, where do you think the most, the most screaming vacancies are right now? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, in terms of the timeline, um, you know, the, the confirmations have started. Yeah. Um, once, one, once the nominee's full paperwork has been sent over to the Senate, one would hope that they could conduct hearings and vote within a couple of months. Because mm-hmm. um, as I said earlier, a lot of the vetting is done beforehand, especially by home state senators. Um, and so you would hope that that would get accelerated and it would only take a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms... In terms of the courts that cry out for the most attention, I mean, one of President Obama's real successes on this was taking courts that were traditionally seen as conservative mm-hmm. and flipping them. Mm-hmm. The Fourth Circuit, um, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, Maryland had always been a, sort of a conservative stronghold, at least in recent memory. Um, one of the most conservative courts of appeals, and President Obama has flipped that. The Sixth Circuit, Michigan and Ohio, um, was a conservative court now leaning much more liberally. And most, most significantly, I think, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, often called the second highest court in the land because it's the federal court in D.C. that hears so much, so many regulatory cases, so many constitutional cases. President Trump, uh, sorry, President Obama filled not just the, the, the first couple of vacancies, but then filled seats that had been held vacant for years going back into the Bush administration mm-hmm. because the, the judges just weren't really needed. Um, President Trump, I think, should start by, I mean, it's hard to pick which one to go with. I would, I would urge him to, to focus on seats that are being opened up by the most impactful judges. On the Ninth Circuit, there's an Oregon judge named Diarmuid O'Scanlan, a legendary conservative judge, one of the right. best writers and thinkers on the court. He's taken senior status, so he'll still be around some, but as he backs away from the court, his presence will be sorely missed. And I think it's important to fill that seat with a great judge. Is he a Reagan pick or a Bush 41 pick? I can't remember, actually. I think he was a Reagan pick, um, but I could be wrong. Right. Um, I probably am wrong now that I've said it on tape. Um, Janice Rogers Brown, a, a Bush 43 appointee to the D.C. Circuit, just announced well, her retirement. The governor's office in California. I know that's, Janice very well. That's right. right. She was a great, great judge. And I think replacing those judges is, is a critical task. And I'll... I'll be quite honest, um, after seeing that the Democrats um, pushed hard to stock the D.C. Circuit with new appointees precisely, and they were candid about this at the time, Harry Reid and others were candid about the fact that they needed to fill those seats in their view in order to protect President Obama's then pending regulatory actions. We'll see how that plays out. But um, it was interesting to see them play so aggressively politically with that court. And one wonders if the Republicans managed to keep Congress for the, the, two, the second two years of President Trump's first term, whether there will be a push to just add seats to that court. You can add seats to that court any time if Congress votes for it. Maybe add three more judges to the D.C. Circuit and thereby uh, creating opportunities for President Trump to add judges. And at the same time, decreasing the power of every individual judge on that court by just expanding the pool of judges. You grew up in Iowa. I grew up in Dubuque, Iowa. You grew up on the Field of Dreams, right? That's right. I grew up in Dubuque, Iowa, um, uh, right next to where the Field of Dreams is. My family farmed that area going back into the 1800s, and and I can say that 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 corner of the country is every bit as pretty as it seems on the silver screen. 
Okay, let's continue the baseball analogy. Is there a farm system existing for Supreme Court picks? I'm already thinking ahead to Kennedy or whoever becomes the next opening. Does President Trump already have a reservoir to pick from? Or does he need to start thinking about these federal vacancies, Adam, in terms of creating that farm system, thinking that I'll put somebody on this court and down the road that is somebody of Supreme Court caliber? Well, I'm going to agree with everything you just said. Um, there is a farm system. One of the great achievements of the conservative of conservatism and of the Republican Party um, in the last four decades has been paying attention to the development of good lawyers and good judges in the federal courts and in the state courts funneling up into the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, there's many people who deserve credit for this, but most importantly, uh, President Reagan's Justice Department, the Federalist Society, and others in that orbit who paid attention to this and made sure to get good judges on the lower courts. But there's two types. You identified both aspects of the farm system. You need to be able to identify good lawyers and put them in in the lower courts and give mm -hmm. them a chance to be judges. Um, at the same time, um, the, the process of becoming confirmed to a lower federal judgeship is itself an important vetting process. No, you really hesitate to put somebody up for a Supreme Court nominee, nomination who's never had to go through that process before. Right. Um, and so it's good that people are going through that. I suspect one of the judges I mentioned earlier, I suspect Joan Larson from Michigan will sail through to confirmation on the Sixth Circuit. She'll probably arouse opposition among some Democrats precisely because they know she would be a, she was on the list of possible Supreme Court nominees. But having her going through that process and then serving on the Sixth Circuit will be very good, just like it was good for Clarence Thomas to go through that process for the D.C. Circuit for a short time before going to the Supreme Court. There's a number of great people on the lower courts, in the new Justice Department and elsewhere, who would make great Supreme Court justices. I suspect they're already on a lot of radars and already being vetted, and hopefully they'll be vetted through a confirmation process before uh, they get their term for th their opportunity for the big spotlight. Give me your two to three preferred picks. That's tough. I um, that's tough because there's a lot of good. I've already mentioned Joan Larson. Right. She would be great. She was a Scalia clerk. She also clerked for Judge Sen Judge David Sentel on the D.C. Circuit, for whom Gorsuch clerked, mm -hmm. for whom I clerked. Um, how's that for a anticlimax? <laughs> Mentioning Gorsuch and Larson, and then me. Um, so there's Larson. There's Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit, a veteran of the last Bush administration, mm -hmm. the nation's leading lower court judge on questions of, of um, regulatory reform and administrative law. I've taken to referring to him as a judicial Jeremiah. He writes these dissenting opinions in the D.C. Circuit, criticizing a new development in administrative law or calling for reform. And he won't persuade his colleagues sometimes, but then his dissents basically become majority opinions in the Supreme Court. It's like that old line, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Oftentimes that's Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit, but but he, he proves truly prophetic after the Supreme Court's had its say. Another judge I've admired since before he was a federal judge is William Pryor on the 11th Circuit in Alabama. He's former Attorney General of the state of Alabama, a profoundly deep thinker on what it means to be a judge, what it means to be a constitutionalist. He gave a speech in D.C. just a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I guess, um, on, on, on moral, on, on, I can't remember what it's called, but on, on, on morals, on, on, on your moral obligations and judicial duty. And it's available out there on the internet as a podcast, and I highly recommend it. So Kavanaugh, Pryor, Larson um, must be, I think at this point, three of the leading contenders, and there are others. So he has choices. He does. I'm not going to ask you to grade the Trump administration at this point. I 
think that's a cheesy exercise, but I will take this in a different route. Let's say that you go back to your office and there's a voicemail and it's from the White House and they say, Mr. White, we would like you to write us a memo. Tell us how we're doing. And be blunt about this. Tell us where we're succeeding. Tell us where we're failing. First of all, Adam, how much would you spend on the positive? How much on the negative? And what do you think is the, what would be the one or two things you would want to put in front of their eyes? What would you want to wake them up to? Is there something positive you want to reinforce with them, or is there something negative you want to alert them to? Well, they started they started on very positive notes with the executive orders that, that started the processes and the agencies. I thought that was great. Um, now they need to see that through to completion. Right. Um, and so it's a positive, uh, but it's also sort of a reminder that that was the beginning of a process and a conversation, not the end of a process mm-hmm. and a conversation. I am very, very, very worried about the appointments, especially in the executive agencies. Um, I do worry that the, the self-styled resistance, as, as some of these people call themselves, inside the agencies, people who are resisting the president's um, policy preferences, um, who are either slow-walking or obstructing things within the agencies, I think that's a, a, tar- a really terrible development. Um, I mean, it's always been there to some extent, but the fact that now they're so unabashed that they'll brag about this, that's very worrisome, and it's going to require political appointees to help turn that ship, to help mm-hmm. identify good people in the agencies and move that around. And so I'd give them a very high grade on their, their policy vision in so many respects and their initial steps towards those ends, but I would, I would give them, a, a, a um, at best, an incomplete on the appointments and just urge them to put as much energy into that as possible. And what more do you want to see on the regulatory front? Well, there's great bills in Congress right now. They've passed the House, and now there's versions of them in the Senate that would substantially reform um, the basic bodies of administrative law, the rules for the road for the federal agencies. So much of this administrative law is from 1946. Um, It's been seven decades. And when Congress wrote and unanimously passed the the law at the time, um, they took a hard look at the administrative state as it existed in the mid-1940s and wrote laws that actually mapped onto that reality. Today, administrative law is so far detached from the actual practice and reality of administrative government, mm-hmm. we need legislative reforms that will outlast any one administration. My favorite is called the Regulatory Accountability Act. It's been passed by Congress. There's a version of it in the Senate, which would make major modifications to the Administrative Procedure Act. There's one called the Reins Act, which would reassert Congress's role in overseeing and legislating on the most important, uh, most most significant regulatory policies. And so I, I'm working on a piece, hopefully out from the Weekly Standard soon, um, on, on the need for the Justice Department to weigh in on this, that the ju- Attorney General can play a very important role in moving the ball forward. It's ironic, you know, the the Attorney General, the Justice Department, they defend the agencies in court. And so, of course, they, they, they call for judicial deference to agency policies. And the Justice Department almost has to do that on a case-by-case basis. But it's critical for the Justice Department to take a step back and, in the legislative arena, right. highlight the systematic problems with those doctrines, which I know people in the Justice Department know very well. And so we need their voice in the legislative process. We need the Attorney General and the senior most staff at the Justice Department to make legislative reform of administrative law a real priority. So it sounds like, Adam, you want to take him in sort of an in-between position, in-between in this regard. Um, A lot of time and energy has been spent on Obamacare, which Mm -hmm. is stalled right now, to put it politely. 
Uh, time and energy has been spent on tax reform, which hasn't really started. The infrastructure plan is nowhere to be found right now. There's been a lot of talk about a lot of very large ideas. Now, ironically, Trump has been active on the legislative front. He has signed more bills at this point than Obama did, but mm -hmm. they're very small, a lot of just mostly symbolic measures for the most part. So maybe you're looking for the third way here, which is do things which are not huge and splashy necessarily, but by goodness, they're important. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not so naive as, naive as to think that reforming administrative law is the most politically salient issue in town. Obviously, in many respects, it's a real snoozer. Right. Um, that's why that's why uh, I'm kept in a small book-lined <laughs> office uh, where I won't bother uh, people with interesting ideas, but, but I think it's important. You mentioned infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure is another, I think, key opportunity for this administration. Um, President Trump, one of the reasons why he was elected is because so many Americans understand we don't do anything anymore. We don't build anything. We don't accomplish things the way the past generations did. Generations that gave us the Hoover Dam and, and all the river improvements out west. Um, things that progressives believed in. Things that Woody Guthrie wrote songs about in the okay. 1930s. Um, on the way through to the Manhattan Project and the Apollo State, the Space Mission and so on. We don't do anything like that anymore. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is because regulation has choked all of this innovation. Two, I th the second is culturally we're just, we seem to be a much more timid and risk-averse people than we used to be. Mm -hmm. And I think those two problems are interrelated. I wish if President Trump could have one major, one major policy achievement, if, if Affordable Care Act bogs down, if tax reform doesn't happen, I hope it's infrastructure. Because I think right. infrastructure stands for something much bigger right now in our country, our inability to actually get things done and cut through regulation. And President Trump, given his background as an executive and as a builder, I think is uniquely well-suited to tell that story. And it's a story that I think mm -hmm. appeals to a vast number of Americans beyond just the base of the Republican Party. Yeah. You're a recovering lawyer. I'm a recovering speechwriter. And I could easily write a speech where you're signing a regulatory measure, but you explain this is part of the larger picture, and you just tie it as you did into infrastructure and other things you want to do. Yeah, I wish, uh, one thing I wish, if I could snap my fingers and plan EPA Administrator Pruitt's next vacation, I wish I wish EPA Administrator Pruitt and others would go to the Hoover Dam and go up the Columbia River and go down to the areas that were reclaimed in the Southwest and show what America did 100 years ago and things that, that, that progressives cheered on. I mean, I'm a country music fan and a Woody Guthrie fan, and there's amazing stories where Woody Guthrie is writing songs about the Grand Coulee Dam right. and the Columbia River, and he's singing lines like, it's time for Mother Nature to do some work for us. Um, that can-do spirit, in that sense, the best, the best part of progressivism, real progress, real progress in the world, mm -hmm. building things and achieving things, um, I wish we could recapture that, and I think there's a longing in this country to recapture that. You're right. Now, by the way, I'd like, I'd like to go back into FDR's uh, executive orders. FDR, by the way, is the king of executive orders. Yes. I think he had, what, like 12,000 of them or something like that. Uh, I'd be curious to see how many executive orders he issued with regard to these projects. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Very good point. By the way, if you could snap your fingers, Adam, could you do something about the heat in this town? It is miserable. Oh, there's a reason why I take my kids to summer camp back in northern Wisconsin in August. You're a very smart man. Adam White, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. 
If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, most certainly including Adam White, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Adam White is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at AdamJWhiteDC. Anything else you'd like to plug while I got you here, Mr. White? No, but thank you for your support of the Hoover Institution. Thank you very much. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45 from right here in the swamp, Washington, D.C. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.